And this is Johnny Rhythm just saying good night to you all and God bless you. Welcome to the Strange Room Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and a massive privilege to have virtually in the studio today Martin Yule of Cleaners from Venus fame. Honestly, it's a real privilege to have you here, Martin. We opened the show with one of my favourite tracks of yours, which for me kind of almost links in with The Strange Brew a little bit. And there seems to be a strong link with the 60s and it's uh, Cleaners from Venus and Ilya Kuryakin looked at me. Yeah, that was actually a poem before it was a song. That's quite unusual, because I wasn't really writing poems there. It wasn't wasn't a poem, it was a kind of stream of lack of consciousness. (laughs) It was a shopping list of everything I liked about the 60s. I mean, it took me till, really, the early 80s to realise that um, the 60s had been quite good. I I think it was when Mrs. Thatcher started going around, you know, stomping on steel workers and miners and erasing communities and starting wars. I suddenly thought... Actually, the 60s wasn't too bad, really. (laughs) (laughs) 
listening back to the Cleaners from Venus compilations, just track after track, you know, it's like a hit singles that were never were really, like Julie Profumo, a Mercury Girl, Girl on a Swing, Mad March Hair. I sort of liked them at the time, you know. I was, I wrote these things and I thought, these things are actually quite good. Surely not the world will not be content to see me starve when I'm writing stuff of this quality. Mm. In fact, the world was only too happy to see me starve and encouraged me by never giving me any money. But <laughs> I just thought... I just thought it was a kind of grand comedy, really. I was writing these songs. I knew they were good, or at least in my lighter moments, I thought they were good. There were times where darker moments, I was thinking, I'm not selling them because they're rubbish. But the answer is, I wasn't selling them because um, the music industry, the whole, whole of this country is dominated by a place called London. Mm. Anyway, I, the, the, the general gist of this was I didn't like London, I didn't like business, so I decided, hmm, I wonder what happened if I conducted an entire music career without any fame or any money. Basically, that's what I did. And I came to the conclusion... Get to do it your way. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I just was, you know, there was no one there to tip their finger and say, you know... Twangy guitars are on their way out, Martin, and things like that. Or, or say, oh, I think we should do that better. You were a bit flat there. I think imperfection is a, an ideal to be striven towards. And, we, and, we'll, and later on in the show, we'll, we'll get plenty of opportunity to, to listen to some more Cleaners from Venus, uh, as well as your solo material. Actually, um, something I did want to mention, one of the reasons you're, you're here is actually you've got an, an excellent new album out as well, Return to Bohemia. We'll be obviously playing a track from that later, but it's a great album, Martin. Thank you. I'm glad people like it, and it seems they do. Moving on uh, from our first Cleaners from Venus track, Martin, next week we go back in a time machine back to 1965, and uh, you've picked the main title from the Icarus file by John Barry. What was the uh, background of uh, you picking this particular song? I was in Singapore, and I think I was um, still... T- I was 12, I'd have been 12, and there was an army cinema on the base, Nisa and Garrison, where I lived in Singapore, and they showed films there. It was a flat, uninteresting building, but the army showed all the films that... I don't know, civilian people had seen in London months earlier and they eventually came out to us. I had no idea what this was about. I just went to the pictures. But the thing that I really, really remember about it, uh, apart from the fact that they had a, a, a hero who had a London accent and specs instead of the kind of James Martin type of character, was this fantastic music. Because I couldn't play music then. I, I, I hadn't even got my first guitar there, but I came out of the cinema thinking, I must not forget this tune, this tune is brilliant. Everything about it never went where you expected it to go. And the instrument, I thought it was some kind of guitar, but in fact, do you know what kind of instrument it was? I've got no idea. It's called a cymbalom. And it's a Hungarian instrument, and it's kind of like a, it sort of looks a bit like a piano frame with the wires, laying on its back and it's played with two kind of beaters two hammers play it very very fast just like cymbalom c-i-m-b-a-l-o-m and john barry had used this now i think john barry must have been taking a lot of exotic holidays in you know in kind of eastern europe or something because this music around about the 60s this this type of music the melodic ideas and the chord changes constantly crop up in his music but that tune really it's a beautiful piece of music and it it stayed with me and eventually of course you couldn't just 
when you were 12 in 1965, go on the internet and go and find it and track it down and say, what was that? I just had to live with it until about maybe five years later when I was 17 and the film came up and thought, oh, that was one of that fantastic music. I mean, you, it's just one of those bits of music that when you were a boy and you leave the cinema and it's still going around your head, that you leave the cinema feeling somehow more heroic <laughs> because of it, you know. Cool, let's listen to it. John Barry, um, the main title from the It Chris file.
that was John Barry and the um, the theme from the Ipcris file, Martin. And next, we're going back even earlier to the late 50s and Patty Page and Old Cape Cod. Am I right to say that um, some of the more older or timeless songwriting, great American songbook, that kind of thing, is, is an influence? Um, well, I think it must have been. I think it must have leaked into me. You know, I've only discovered this song recently. I discovered it from hear- hearing it from... Um, I, th- <laughs> I think it was on an advert. It was Groove Armada. Mm. It was a track called um, Across the River or something like that. And I had to find out what, who that was by. And then I thought, oh, this is Patty Page. And I knew a little about her. She was, you know, kind of a nation's sweetheart in America. Kind of almost before rock and roll. She was the clean side of the 50s. But it's such a lovely record. And I just went through part of the summer just playing it over and over again. Uh, last year is the optimistic side of you know the Americans do very good time feel good music they're great you know (laughs) really the people who wrote that are a kind of ancestor of Brian Wilson songwriting wise Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you listen to it you know the chord changes if you're fond of sand dunes and salty Quaint little villages here and there You're sure to fall in love with old Cape Cod If you like the taste of a lobster stew Served by a window with an ocean view You're sure to fall in love with old Cape Cod Winding roads that seem to beckon you Miles of green beneath the sky of blue Church bells chiming on a Sunday morning Remind you of the town where you were born If you spend an evening you want to stay Watching the moonlight on Cape Cod Bay You're sure to fall in love with old Cape Cod Oh, if you spend an evening you want to stay Watching the moonlight on Cape Cod Bay You're sure to fall in love with old Cape Cod You're sure to fall in love You're sure to fall in love with old Cape 
Cocky Page and Old Cape Cod. Now, Martin, I am familiar with Georgie Fame, but after you chose this, I obviously tracked the song down, Sonny, and Georgie Fame does a great version of this song. Georgie Fame? When I was at school back in England, because I moved around quite I came back to England, you know, sometime in 1966. And in my third year, what you would call, you youngsters call year nine, we had a northern, an old-fashioned northern teacher. I think he was a Yorkshireman. You know, he had that kind of crinkly, wavy hair that you never see these days. And he said it's a tweed jacket, and he was called Mr. Smith. And he used to ramble on sometimes. So we were doing whatever book we were doing, and everyone's yawning a bit. And then he just said, he said something like, you know, it strikes me that if Georgie Flew wasn't wasting his time with pop, he'd probably be a first-class jazz singer. <laughs> I hadn't even thought of this, you know, here's a guy in Clark Kent spectacles with wavy hair and a tweed jacket telling me about Georgie Fay when I was 13. I'm going, right, I'll consider that then, shall I? <laughs> but the thing is, that what I remember about that, that particular record, I hadn't heard the Bobby Head version. Mm. And Georgie Fame did a, a first-class version of it. And he had this great voice. I know he is regarded as a jazz singer, but he should have just, you know, Pasco collect your 200 quid, whatever, just go straight on to jazz, you should have done that. Sonny, well yesterday my life was filled with rain, Sonny, you smile at me and really ease the pain, all oh, the darkness is done. Bright as yeah, my sunny one shines so sincere, sunny one so true. I love you.
Georgie Fame and Sonny. Martin, you picked the Yardbirds and Heart Full of Soul. And am I right, kind of in the mid 60s, that you really started listening to that stable of bands after the Mersey Beat era started to come in, like the Small Faces move? Did you start writing songs in that period too? Yes, I did. They're my kind of musical influences. Every man, Jack of them. Tony Hicks and Alan Clark of the Hollies, you know, and, and Nashy. And uh, I shouldn't call him Nashy, really. I don't know, but I think of him as Nashy. I think of him as somehow colourful and friendly and cuddly. And Graham Goldman, who was the kind of the missing piece of this jigsaw, because mm. he was in a band called the Mockingbirds. And the Mockingbirds never really made it, but Graham Goldman is kind of like, well, I've been described as a zelig in pop music. He was zelig. He's discernible in every hit era. He wrote brilliant songs. He's up there with the Beatles, Goldman is. Mm. I mean, he, I'd love to meet him. I've missed him twice. He produced some friends of mine, you know, and I missed that. And then he was writing a lyric with Captain Sensible, and he left in his helicopter the day I arrived on my bicycle. I think within, I missed him by half an hour. <laughs> and so Graham Gorman wrote, Bus Stop for the Hollies, For Your Love for the Arbirds, Heart Full of Soul for the Arbirds, No Milk Today for Herman's Hermits. And then, of course, he co-wrote I'm Not in Love with um, mm. Eric Stewart. Mm. I mean, he's staggeringly good. And so kind of quiet. He's another non-showbiz creature. I mean, he, that's a good model to look at, really. I think he lives quite a quiet life. I reckon there's this kind of, um, it's an art, especially now he's in art, but there's a golden section mm. in pop music. And for me, the golden section of British songwriting lies somewhere between summer of 1964 and summer of 1968. That's it. Yeah. You can find great examples of whimsicality, genuine, great songwriting, timeless, timeless, wonderful stuff. And although I don't try and rewrite these things, I'm thinking, this is the form in which I would like my music to take place, that it takes place in about three minutes, <laughs> it begins well, ends well, and there's a good chunk in the middle, you know. Mm. There's no dicking around putting effects on you write the song before you go into the studio and it sounds good with whatever instrument you've written it on fritz fire from the four pennies told me that once he was an a and r man at chrysalis or somewhere like that i think and i went he actually had me in had me in i was 17 years old had to, i didn't have to take him a tape he just said to me okay what have you got and i played him these songs and he said you know you're on the right track. If a song's going to stand up, it will sound good with one instrument and one voice. And he said, and if you go with that, and I've stuck with that all my life. So if, if you've got the song, if, you, if I can come into your living room and play this song on a piano or a guitar, and you can reckon it's good, well, then, then it's built to last. Everything after that is kind of the easy bit, really.
that was the Yardbirds and Heartful of Soul. Next, Martin, we're, we're getting a bit rockier. Uh, we're moving to 1971, so things get a bit harder and more progressive. And we have the Pink Fairies and Do It. That, that's a great track. Um, was this representative of your sort of uh, teen years? Did you start rebelling in that? Yeah, period? it was. It was. Uh, well, it's not rebelling, but I mean, that was my most troublesome years. I got home from my washing up job, you know, giving up my ideas of a career. I was 17. I'd just take a washing up job, just enough to pay for my own debauchery. Back to the house that I was kind of squatting in with a mate of mine, and he passed me a cigarette that I can only describe as being quite long in shape, and put this thing on the dance set and said, right, smoke that and listen to this. <laughs> I've never stopped listening to it. In fact, it's, it's credited to Twink. I think it's probably the whole band, because I had a, I think Fairies had a brilliant guitarist called Paul Rudolph. I mean, the, other, the others weren't any slouches, but that track is the, is the blueprint for punk. Yeah, I think, and and certainly you would get Captain Sensible if a damn to admit it. And I, I reckon if you went and took that track to John Lydon and said, "Well, what do you reckon to that, Johnny?" I think he'd probably say, "Yes, I was aware of this." The only thing is, they made that record in February of 1971, and punk kind of didn't really start picking itself up till I don't know mid '76, really. So it does sound like a punk rock record, or or at least a blueprint for it. It's got some great searing guitar work in it. It was certainly a great thing to have when you were 18 years old and thinking, right, what can I do that will annoy everybody who's 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 older than me and doesn't think like I do? And that would have been it because there was sort of all else going on. Otherwise, you were down to Neil Young and James Taylor and yeah. all that American check shirt mellow stuff, you know. Yeah. That was no good when you were 18. Yeah. <laughs> You want something a bit, <laughs> bit lively, don't you?
we just listen to Pink Fairies and do it. And um, it, it kind of feeds into our, our next track, which I think is one of your early forays into the music industry. And I understand you had a, a band called The Plod or The Mighty Plod. Yeah, you, Plod or The Mighty Plod. Yeah, and you, you were kind of like a sort of hard glam rockers and uh, we'll, we'll be playing We were Neo glam City. rockers, yeah. Yeah, and I wrote a song called Neo City because it, I just thought... Well, you know, it's got to be futuristic. My idea, before punk happened, I thought, well, we've had all wearing great coats and beards, and we can't go back to the 60s, so what's it got? it's got to be something kind of space age, you know. So when glam rock came along, like Mick Jagger once said, you know, generally an Englishman doesn't have to be asked twice to put, to put on makeup and a dress. So uh, off we all went, like a load of plumbers in Baco foil. <laughs> dressed up playing these, these clubs <laughs> and pubs where half the time we had girls screaming at us and the rest of the time we were being chased down the road by people who thought you know we were homosexuals and needed to be beaten up <laughs> <laughs> so they were very interesting times but it, honestly it was the best time of my life really playing all these the great working class playgrounds of East Anglia you know and writing these songs but I thought we've got to write something futuristic In, you know I had this kind of idea of the future that everyone will be Everything will be tubes and glass and, and you know, you'd take a, you'd go to a machine and, and you'd get a bacon and egg pill and you'd have that. You know, all the usual things, the, the jet packs, the dog with the space helmet on, <laughs> you know, the dog with the goldfish bowl and his head walking on a conveyor belt. You know, my idea of the future was taken from the Jetsons. I hadn't thought it through much more than that. And so Neo City's about that, that, that love would have been a kind of, old-fashioned thing you'd have just met some chick that you liked and then you'd have had your taken your leisure pills and gone off to the neo city you know and then to my amazement people now think it's quite good you know it's, it rocks it, it really does rock actually we rehearsed it rehearsed it because thought crikey we're going into the studio so we better practice so we spent when we knew we had a chance to make these demos in a proper studio in london we thought, let's not cock this up. For five nights, we didn't have any gigs. It was the middle of January, early January. So we we just went into the hut where we used to rehearse and, and played the six songs we were going to do all the way through for, for every night for about two weeks. And so when we went into the studio, we were points perfect. Mm. You know, six tracks in one day and then put the overdubs on and mixed and everything. We kind of got signed on the spot. And then, of course, nothing happened. And the tracks lay in the vaults for ages. And, and what you hear has been rescued. You know, it seems we, we'd done a lot of road work. We were young lads. The drummer was still only 17 or 18. And I think I was, that was, I think I was 21, yeah. Yeah. And soon enough we'll be there 
Modern and Neo City, great track. Next, Martin, we're going over to Greece. You've picked Break. Well, this is a very interesting band. They're called Aphrodite's Child. They were Greece's, apart from Nana Mascuri, Greece's chief export, musical export. But let me tell you, they're pretty interesting because the listeners may not know this, but their bass player was Demis Roussos. Their keyboard player was Vangelis Papathanasiou who's kind of did music for, you know, loads and loads of really good film music. And Dennis Roos is no, no slack. So this is the cream of Greek's rock uh, music, guys. That's not very articulate, is it? Greek, Greek, Greece's rock musicians. I think they'd gone to live in Paris at the time of uh, the Colonels because there was a kind of um, right-wing military hunter took over Greece in the, in the mid to late 60s. And forgive me, Greek people, for not knowing the entire history of it. But I discovered this track when I was in France because they had one single here, Aphrodite's Child. It was called Rain and Tears. Break, I think, was a single, but it never made it. And it's a staggeringly good track. It's well psychedelic. Bye, bye, my friend, goodbye. Oh, you make it. 
Aphrodite Child and Break. We've now played a lot of tracks that have influenced or formed a key part of, of your time, uh, Martin. And let's go now into the cleaners from Venus. And um, you've picked only a shadow. And um, you basically just decided to do it yourself and started releasing music on cassette. You had the lo-fi approach. Yeah, well, that's it. I've been sort of, in a way, I mean, it was partly my defiance. But the other thing was, in a way, I've been cut off without a penny by the by the music industry, you know, I I didn't know the mechanisms by which you got yourself involved in the music industry. I'd now made a record, I knew how to write songs, and it seemed that almost every approach which I made to the music industry had ended in some sort of disaster. The people in the music industry had seemed to have no compunction about telling you lies, giving you just a you know, a complete fantasy and thinking, Well this is gonna happen then it didn't. I thought, I can't go on like this. I'm just going to spend all my time waiting for people to phone up and tell me when things are happening. So I decided to run my own little music industry and just put things out myself. I did it like a cottage industry. So I set myself up with a name over the door. Martin Newell, seller of music, of homemade music. <laughs> so that's what we did. And, and how do you get it? Well, you have to either come round to the door or you phone up or, or you write in and we mail it to you. Mm. People say, well, how many do you expect to sell? I don't know. I think... I thought if we'd sold 200, that would be quite successful. You'd certainly regard that if you were making teapots. So so why wouldn't you just sell 200? You, you wouldn't have to sell 50,000. I mean, it'd be a big hit. So I decided to just do that and try and be happy doing it. We made cassettes and the Porter Studios had just been invented. So it was possible to do it. And so we got to a point where record companies actually sometimes got in touch with us and said, we'd be interested to hear this stuff. And I said... Oh, well, I'm sorry, we don't deal with record companies. <laughs> it got a bit bomb, because at one point, Lowell, who was a real anarchist, said, look, should we be taking money for this stuff? And I was saying, what, we give it away? And he said, no, 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 I was thinking, so, uh, I said, well, okay, so we came up with a compromise. So why don't we do music for groceries? That would be a direct swap, so, you know, we swap music for food. But then we realized, if it was over a long distance, there could be perishables involved, which means all the implications of someone posting you a cauliflower or something. So so we couldn't have that. And I, I don't know what happened in the end. Something happened. It always did. <laughs> I think we eventually started getting paid bits and pieces. And that is how the cleaners from Venus sort of ran for a while. Yeah, and um, it's interesting because the work that you did in cleaners from Venus is really popular now and only a shadow was covered by a massive band, M- MGMT. Recently, yes, they were, and I didn't kind of realise that till my daughter said, someone said, hey, you know MGMT's done one of your tracks, and I kind of said to my daughter, and Johnny's daughter as well, that, they got about two years of training, so, so there's Lily there, she's about 15, and, 
and Stella's about the past 17. I said, oh, girls, how are you passing, passing teenagers? I said, have you ever heard of a band called MGMT? And they said, yeah. They're like, really, hip? And I went, oh, right. I said, is it good then if I cover one of my songs? I said, and they were like, and they were like no way. <laughs> so we went on, on YouTube and looked them up, and they were going, wow. Did they look at me with different eyes? No, they still thought I was a stupid git. They just thought I hit lucky. Well, they did it exactly the same as we did it, you know. When I did that track, I thought it was really good, and I liked it. I played it to people at the time, about 1983. Went, yeah, it's all right. It's not, it's not among your best, you know. I went, all right. <laughs> but, I mean, listening to it with, um, you know, fresh ears, with, um, you know, listening back to your version as well as MGMT's version, really just highlights to me is that, you know, with a different environment and a a bit of luck and a fair wind that, you know, the the you could have been massive. Yeah, but you know, it's uh what I would say it's it's perfectly as useless being ahead of your time as it is it is being behind your time, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean I've been both as well. Yeah. yeah, you know, you're talking to a guy who was who joined a prog rock band at the beginning of punk. Yeah. <laughs>
we we just heard Cleanest from Venus back from around 1982 and only a shadow. And we move forward a couple of years right into the heart of the Thatcher years. We have another Cleanest from Venus track and some are in a small town. And that that's from your Under Wartime Conditions record, Martin. And is it right to say that that is an album and track influenced by the, that particular period? Yeah, it was, yeah, because A, I was very poor. B, there was a minor strike going on. That whole period of mid-80s politicised me, and I'm not a political sort of man, really, or wasn't. And so for the whole of the middle part of the late 80s, I became quite political. And Summer in a Small Town was about that, where I, I was watching not just an irresponsible government doing things, but I was watching the very threads of the tapestry, the social tapestry of the country which I had known, loved and grown up in being interfered with. And that interference, the legacy of that has filtered down through now to what we have now. I'm not going mad, I'm not going mad, I'm not going mad, I'm not going mad.
so that was Summer in a Small Town by Cleaners from Venus. Next, Martin, we have an artist who understands a big influence on you, and the track that you've picked uh, is by one of France's greatest poets and uh, songwriters, Leo Ferre, and you've picked La Nana, which I understand is French for the ultimate doll. Well, it's kind of like, uh, uh, yeah, it is. La Nana, c'est dans le vrai just la Nana. It's extolling all the virtues of a, you know, a good time girl, really, or a girl generally, and how men are, are afraid of them. Yeah. And um, am, am I right to say that after the cleaners from Venus kind of fell away and uh, away you did some music after that, you eventually moved into being a, a successful poet. I understand you are, you know, one of Britain's most successful published living poets. I've been told... Well, it doesn't make any difference because I've done it. Uh, I've, I've treated the poetry establishment just the same as I've treated the music establishment. But I've been told I'm England's most published poet because I've had a poem in a national newspaper of one stripe or another for you know nearer a quarter of a century every week. And and when I was writing for the Independent, sometimes three a week. <laughs> La Danana, c'est dans la voix et dans le geste. La Danana, c'est Danana avec un zeste. La Danana, quand à la jupe parole bonbon. La Danana, c'est pas compliqué mais c'est bon. La Danana, que ça vous mate, tout ça vous touche. La Danana, c'est l'eau courante au fond de la bouche. La Danana, et quand ça vous refile une galoche. La Danana, tu joues complet dans ton cinoche. La Danana, c'est dans la taille et dans le face. La Danana, c'est Danana et puis c'est basse. La Danana. Quand t'as chômé devant son cul, la Zenana, les chômeurs, ça coupe pas les rues. La Zenana, que ça se traîne ou que ça se trimballe, la Zenana, au septième ciel, fais mal, la Zenana, et puis le redemande un ticket, la Zenana, pour t'emballer. Au bout du pied, la c'est du jasmin sous une guenille. La zenana, du coup humain, on espadrille. La zenana, c'est une prison dans sa bastille. La zenana, c'est du vison en haut des quilles. La zenana. Quand ça t'emballe au bout de la rue, la zenana, ça te fait marron et ça te lâche plus, la zenana. Quand ça vient lire au fond du pal, la zenana, t'as même plus le temps de tourner les pas. 
C'est dans la voix et dans le geste La Zenana, c'est Zenana avec un Z La Zenana, quant à la jupe parale, bonbon La Zenana, c'est pas que c'est gagné Mais c'est bon That was Leo Ferry, and after that sort of period uh, when uh, I understand you had a few years where the the music kind of stopped being released and the poetry kicked up, but then um, in the early 90s things really started hotting up on the music front, and uh, obviously uh, on, on this show you've picked a track from your best-known album, which is The Greatest Living Englishman, and a, a really good track from that you've picked, Goodbye Dreaming Fields, and I've got to mention... Andy Partridge uh, had a hand in, in that album. I've always loved XTC. What was it like working with Andy and, and that period, Martin? Well, um, Andy had just been working with the young Blur at the time. They, they, what was might have been Modern Life is Rubbish. I think Stephen Street ended up producing it. I can't remember. Somebody wanted to put me and Andy together because they thought we'd work together. And they th I think they thought I was a bigger XTC fan than I was. I did like XTC. I liked them a great deal. But um, I, I didn't know that much about them. I, I mean, not Lowell did and Giles from the Queens from Venus were huge XTC fans. I tended to like their singles. But I met Andy in November of 92 and he liked my poetry. He'd been sort of buying one or two of my poetry books before that. He didn't know I did music. And he said, you can, he seemed to suddenly be aware that I could write songs then. And he said, you can, how come I haven't heard of you? How come? I said, well, you know, I, I had to explain to him how I hated the music industry and all the rest of it. But we ended up working together. And uh, to tell you the truth, I got on with him like a house on fire. We were like twins who'd been separated at birth. Same sense of humour. I think he has a rather different attitude in the studio to me. He's not, he's not a slap it down and leave it merchant like I am. So I said, look, one of us is going to be the producer, and since it's you, I'm going to do what, what you say. And I, that is exactly what I did. And that is the problem that uh, one or two people have had with Andy. Is he's, he, like, but Andy will admit that. He'll, he'll say, look, I'm somewhere between Santa Claus and Mussolini in the studio. But I was quite happy. Someone thought I'd be the governor, and it just meant I was free to kind of, well, not exactly sit back, but go and be the artist. And so we... The only time I, I picked a couple of vetoes out of the hat was I, I just did once say to him, we've got to remember here we're making a Martin Newell album and not an XTC album, OK? And he, and he was just very gracious about it. He said, of course, you know. 
lovely bloke. And I, I sort of, you know, I didn't fall out with him exactly, but there came a time where, you know, you know, we we moved on. I, we got different lives, different women, and all the rest of it. So we we got quite close at one point. Do you think you'd work with him again, or is it kind of just that period of your life? And he came along at that period of my life. I mean, I think we we both were having similar things. Both of our different relationships were breaking up. But unlike um, Sting or Phil Collins or something like that, we we didn't go into therapy or, or go and have magazine articles or about it we just kind of got on with a fucking job you know yeah and because he's a good he's a good he's all west country lad and i'm in good east anglian so we just thought well, well we've got an album to be doing here so let's carry <laughs> on with this and i think the, the album came out and we were both in quite a lot of pain in our personal lives but um we never talked about that we we just made filthy jokes and got on with a record in his shed and it was like quite honestly it was a pleasure to do six, six months of just huge laughs and amazing thrills Two men in a shed. <laughs> Doesn't sound wholesome, but it's actually probably quite good. Yeah, I mean, um, would I work with him again? Um, oh, that's really difficult because he did. He did me the favour of probably making what a lot of uh, my listeners and like my so-called fans would really like me being produced properly. But I don't really want to be produced properly. It was fun once. In fact, I did it twice. I did another one with Louis Philippe. But I kind of like things that sound like they've been made in, a, in an old radio shack or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I probably would work with him again, yeah. But I don't know. It's, uh, I wouldn't push it. I'd like to see him again. I'd like to sit down and have a bloody good yarn with him.
same. Say, between the covers, to see that dark turquoise that comes in from the top. Goodbye, Dreaming Fields. So, Martin, we, we have the last track of another artist um, that we're playing today, and it's The Zombies and Leave Me Be. I, I was reading up about this, and that was the unsuccessful follow-up to She's Not There. Colin Blundstone and Rod Argent and the guys, are, are they still influential to you today? Yeah, I, in fact, I'm looking at my pile of CDs there and I just dug out only two days ago Odyssey and Oracle. It's a very good album, and, um, but they did good singles as well. Mm. And um, that one was there. I just, uh, I think that was the last track I heard before somebody stole the 60s from me. My dad was in the army and it was, I think it would have been September, October of 1964. And I was just shipped out to Singapore, a very unhappy English boy with short back and side, shipped out to Singapore for the best part of two years, never saw England again until England had turned from black and white into day glow. And that was kind of like the last track I heard. That was the track that I took in my head with me from England to, to the far east, 8,000 lonely miles away. You know, I came back to England and, and I, I was looking for it ever, ever since and I, I, I play it quite a lot. It's, it's, it sums up, you know, kind of black and white, mid-1960s autumn for me. If it seems that I'm too quiet That's cause I'm missing her My mind tells me I have to fight But I can't help missing her you believe me alone until I can think about her without feeling sorry for myself. You'd better leave me be till I don't need her anymore. I don't wanna meet her again until I'm sure I'm over her. Feeling tired and wanting It's not like I thought it would be Love just cannot end at parting My world's dropped from under me You better leave me alone You better leave me alone Until I can think about her Without feeling sorry for myself You'd better leave me be Till I don't need her anymore I don't wanna meet her again Until I'm sure I'm over zombies and leave me be now martin we have a, another one of your solo tracks and for me it's a slight change in in sound and a little bit more of a sort of classic songwriting approach it's your winter garden and i kind of uh, picked this one to, to play on the on the show because I, I i really love this track can you tell me about uh, your winter garden i think it was um the very late 90s 
and uh, I'd been, you know, mucking about with jazz chords for ages, but I, my piano playing got a bit better, and I concentrated on that to see if I could write something. I suppose getting into my 40s, I began to think, if I had to write songs for proper grown-up singers, someone like Tony Bennett or something, how would I go about doing that? And so that was really my first stab at, at writing a, a, you know, a, a song that was more jazz than anything else, or torch at least, a torch song. Mm. And from yeah. that, and then I wrote Grenadine and Blue and all these other stuff, and you know, I've, I'm still writing for for you know odd jazz singers and. Uh, because the thing about jazz is that um, jazz musicians, again, they're very often very virtuosi. You know, they, they 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 can play really, really well. What you find the jazz songwriting, jazz songwriting, you don't often find a jazz songwriter writing great songs. You know, jazz musicians do show tunes. I wanted to learn how to write, you know, to write grown-up songs. So that was my striving as I got into my forties, thinking. Come on, we've got to do better than this. We can't go on writing about girls and chocolate and how how awful politicians are and all the usual stuff that obsessive songwriters. So I, I thought, let's try and write something grown up, and so that's what I've done, and that, and that c- continues right now.
the track we just played is the, your Winter Garden, but I think when you were speaking about writing some great songs and timeless, um, we're finishing off with the Days of May, and that's uh, very wistful and memorable. That that feels like one of those tracks that will live on. I hope so. I want to write some more of them. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I, I, I thought that would suit Matt Munro if he was still alive. Yeah. It was nearly one of the songs you could have said it would have suited me if I was still alive because that was one of the first ones I wrote after I came back from the dead. Yeah. But don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> not immediately anyway. That's one of the uh, the highlights from your new record, Return to Bohemia. And there's some great songs on there. Um... Johnny at Soft Bodies, who's brought out the new album, Soft Bodies Records, um, they've got it. They've they've actually got me to do a couple of videos, and they're quite good. There's one doing animated and uh, imaginary seas, and the other one is he's going uh, he's going out with Marilyn. And that's a good song. <laughs> that that could probably get airplay if I was you yeah. know, probably a nicer boy, or if I I don't know if I bought some mush a bunch of cocaine or gave him some money or something. Or... Uh, th- thank you again for being the, the perfect guest and host on uh, on today's show, Martin. And we, we are finishing off on a wistful and timeless note with one of the highlights from Return to Bohemia, which is a fabulous record. And The Days of May is certainly a fabulous song too. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Cheers then. Bye-bye. The days of May They flit away Like pretty girls on summer lawns and join the crowds in the town the days of May you have no say in where they go or what they do like someone who you might have known the days of May The days of May Are sometimes grey With the morning still as stone Then you wake one day alone And see the blossom drifting down on a half-remembered town The days of May Distant drums, a perfumed haze When evening comes, until you fall And then they're gone on the days of May The days of May 
They have this way If you let them rule your heart That you won't recall the start Until the rain comes down like lace Or a veil upon a face the days of May